0: Again, Pastor Martin and his family, they're away this weekend, um, and so we pray for rest, safe travels, and good time. They're there they're with um, extended family for uh, Pastor Martin's cousin's wedding in L.A., and so we, we pray not just rest for them, um, for Jan, Ellie, and Pastor Martin, but also for their extended family, that it would be fruitful, and they, they would grow in their love for one another. Um, But this week, we're continuing in our series uh, titled Core, based out of 1 Timothy. And we started this in June, took a break during July when we had together in worship all of our children here. And so we're continuing on. And last week, Pastor Martin talked about family. And he called us to consider what it means to honor those who have come before us, to respect them, to care for them, to show them love. This text that we're reading today comes right after that. And so as we go through it, I hope that you'll have in mind the things that we talked about for family. A lot of the text talks about church leadership, but really it's not just about church leaders. A tendency for people when they read this passage, they read about elders, leaders, those who teach, and if you're not involved in any of that, you say, this has nothing to do with me, let me move on, because there's something far more interesting to most people these days, and it's drinking, what the Bible has to say about drinking. Not as funny here. Um, The first service, they they got a kick out of it. But this text has more to do than with just church leadership and with the details and nuts and bolts that Paul talks about. And it fits into the rest of the letter, where it talks about um, Timothy, his growth as a leader, how he should care for his leaders, Christian maturity, leadership, and character. It falls right in line. So as we go through this text, we'll talk about things more generally. We've talked about the connection between church and family. And the thing I want to acknowledge here is that churches have problems. Amen? Oh, kind of shy. But churches have problems. People at church, leaders, even pastors mess up and make mistakes. The same is true for families. Amen? Oh, a little more there. Oh, I don't know if that's a thing or if you're just getting more comfortable. But families also have problems. You see, we might tell children that they're perfect in every way, but the truth is they're not. They make mistakes. The truth is as children grow up, they learn and realize that their parents aren't perfect either. And So families have problems. Churches have problems as well. And the Bible calls us to address our problems, to address our sin and to work them out together. Not just at home, not just in church, but in every area of life. The Bible calls us to seek out accountability, to rebuke and correct one another for love, for the sake of reconciliation and restoration. Now that sounds really pretty, but the truth is we don't like doing this. Um, If you do, something's wrong. Um, If you enjoy this process, it's actually a very difficult process that we avoid, that our natural instinct is not to tangle with. There's a few reasons for that that I want to look at today, and the first is that it takes time. It takes time to stop and talk about sin. It takes time to stop and uh, talk about our hurts, our mistakes, to confront people, to apologize, to forgive and show grace. It all takes time. And for people who live close to New York, no one has time for that. We're all about moving on to the next thing. No one has time to stop and sit and and talk about feelings and, and past things. So our tendency is just to chug on forward. Whenever I meet anyone from California and they describe their lives, I get a little frustrated. Uh, I've never been to the West Coast and people tell me that I would enjoy it for about two or maybe three days and then I would get really frustrated because everything is so slow. Right. But people from California, they'll describe their lives and how their workday is about two to three hours shorter than it is here and how everyone's you know, kind of taking their time. And I would go, ah, and they would look at me and they would say, what's wrong with that? And I would stop and I would think about it. And I realized that's actually really nice. But as a New Yorker, of course, I say, no, no, no. We have to keep going, right? And that's true when we think about working out our problems, talking about difficult things, talking about our hurts, talking about our mistakes. It's easy simply to say, I don't have time. The second reason why this is hard that I want to look at is that it takes emotional energy. It can be painful to talk about our hurts relives history, to address someone else's, you don't know how they'll respond, and it can turn into something more explosive. And so what we learn to say is simply, I'm fine. We keep everyone at bay, all the problems, at a foot's distance and simply say, I'm fine, I can move on. The problem with that is that all of those things bubble up. Even though we say we're fine, all of those issues are still there. Stereotypically, and I don't know about Younger children today, but stereotypically, men are taught to move on. Don't sit in your hurt. Don't sit in your mistakes. Move on. Suck it up. Deal with it. Go on to the next thing. And we're taught not to invest this emotional energy. The third reason why this might be hard to do or to even consider is that we aren't really equipped to do it. We're never really taught to do it well. In my family growing up, Korean-American household, right, and I'm sure this is true for not just Asian-Americans, but just everyone, right, we used to say that matters at home stay at home. And the short way to say it in Korean is jiban right, in-home business. And whether it's problems or just things going on, you don't share that outside. You don't learn to do it outside, but the truth is we don't learn to do it within our homes either. Now, I was always the child who who made problems for my parents. I would go and tell everyone everything when I was younger. And so sometimes, you know, every now and then, maybe once in like four years, we didn't go to church on a Sunday and we went to the beach. And my parents spent 30 minutes saying, Richard, next week when you go to church, don't tell anyone we went to the beach. Just say something happened and you don't know. And guess what I did? Next week, I I went to the beach last week. And everyone looked at my parents like, that's not what you told us. And that's a silly example, right? but generally we're taught to be very private with our problems, with issues, with our struggles. And unless somebody in your life has made an intentional decision and commitment to do these things, to teach them well, we don't learn to do it. So for all of these reasons, and probably more, it's much easier for us to say, let's not deal with the problems. Let's just move on. Yes, there's a high cost of time, emotional energy. It can be painful. Right? It's hard to learn to do well. It takes a lot of time. But the Bible calls us to it because it is worth it. It is worth it. Because on the other end of this process, there is deeper love, deeper communion, and, and deeper understanding, not just with one another, but with God. Because He has done this for each of us. An easy way to think of that, about it is uh, to consider surgery. When we find an issue that needs to be addressed surgically, we put our bodies through more pain, through anesthetics, through all sorts of things so that we can be better, so that we can be healthier, so that we can consider a longer life. The same is true for PT, physical therapy. We put ourselves through pain and and all these exercises that hurt more than they really should so that we can function better. And so with this issue of sin and dealing with our sin. Yes, it's hard, but we need to consider that on the other side, there is something better. Now, this is also great, but the thing is, the difficult thing and the upsetting truth is that even when we want to do this, it's hard. It's hard. But the Bible says it's so important for us to do. And the language it uses is almost bizarre because it doesn't say, this is important, read this multiple times. It doesn't say it over and over like other things in the Bible. When the Bible repeats itself, it's saying this is important. But instead, it uses different language here. In verse 21, Paul says, I charge you inside of God, of Christ Jesus, and the elect angels. And it's a bit over the top to say before heavenly witnesses, this is what I charge you to do. And then it gets very serious. He continues on to make this a very public matter. And for people who aren't used to doing this, that's like a death sentence. To say, do this publicly. He says, those elders who are still sinning, who persist in sin, I want you to reprove them, to correct them, to rebuke them before everyone else. And he does this for a very specific reason, so that others may take warning. And so the Bible says that this is important, not just because of the people involved, but because we teach other people when we do it. When we deal with our problems, when we talk about our sin, when we learn to rebuke each other in love, we teach the people around it, us. easy way to look at it is that we teach our children. My dad, when I was younger, and still now, he always talks about DNA. I don't know where he got the idea from. But everything that's like similar between us, he says, DNA. Right? When I was younger, he wanted me to be a doctor, and I wanted to be a doctor too. And he said, it's because of DNA. And I'm like... Sociology and family systems, not so much DNA. But the truth is, we do inherit DNA from our parents. We also inherit a toolbox of skills and and tools to deal with the world. A toolbox to deal with conflict, our mistakes, and the mistakes of others. You see, when we don't do it right, we teach our children, whether intentionally or not, we teach them how to do it as well. And this applies to our own biological children, which I have none of, so I don't know why this is a motion that I chose. Whether it's our own children, whether it's our extended families, or whether it's even the children in our church family, we teach our children how to do this based on how we do it. And so we can be intentional to try to do it well. We can be intentional, make mistakes, and teach them poorly. We can be unintentional I think is far worse than either of the other two options. What else is that we teach other people when we learn to do this well? See students, if, for example, if a student does something wrong, they're caught and a teacher addresses it but doesn't punish them and says, you know, just, just let it go. The other students who watch learn that what that student did isn't as big a deal as we might have thought. It's not as serious an issue and I can kind of get away with certain things. What's worse in our culture, when we see those who've been hurt, oppressed, abused, cheated. When we see the oppressors and offenders let go loosely, cheaply excused. We might not say it with our words, but we speak a loud message to the victims to say, what happened to you isn't that serious. We teach each other by the way we learn to do this. Second reason why this is very important is that it stunts the function of the body. As the body hurts or is crippled, the body has to compensate. And when problems aren't addressed, that compensation runs deep. The illustration I like to think about is a chiropractor. And maybe you might be on the fence about chiropractic practices and whatnot, but I've been recently watching a lot of chiropractic videos uh, in the last year. Uh, it It started when I was five. My cousin cracked my knuckle. And then since then, I've learned to crack every joint in my body. And so when I watch these chiropractic videos, it's just, wow, they're so good at what they do, and it must feel so refreshing. But in the midst of that, I hear what these chiropractors say, and a lot of what they talk about is that when you have a problem in one area, it doesn't just stay there. If your hip is off balance, your shoulders will compensate, and you'll have problems in your arms, and you might end up with pain in your wrist that started from your hip. When there's a problem that's not addressed, the body compensates. The same is true for people, whether it's a a group setting or it's a family, it's a church, it's a job, whatever it is, this is true. I'm sure we've all experienced this before. When you're working with a team and just one person isn't really carrying their weight and nobody wants to address that problem and so everyone bends and compensates to do more work. When this happens at work, there's a very strong sense of accountability because you can get fired from a job But students at school, a lot of times this happens and there are people who just kind of tag along for a grade and teachers won't actually reprimand them all the time. They'll tell the group, deal with it and learn. And it's a good life lesson, but what happens is that the rest of the group has to compensate and do more work. When you're working with volunteers, the same is true when somebody is slacking. Everyone else needs to bend and compensate to do more. We see this even in a grander picture of our culture. I mentioned this the last sermon that I preached, but I had a friend. I I said that I'm not perfect, and they were so offended because everyone has to be perfect today. And so I had to compensate. I could no longer talk about my mistakes or faults because they would immediately have this reaction of, no, you're great. Inside, I said, no, I'm not. But we compensate even in our culture. In our personal relationships, this happens too. We make excuses for some of the people in our lives without addressing the issues. It's because they're stressed they are this way. It's because they might not have experienced love when they were younger. It's just who they are. It's their personality. So we just move along. And yes, it's true. Different people have different personalities. Different people communicate in different ways. But in our society, those become excuses not to deal with the problems. And what happens is that the people around need to bend and compensate whatever's going on. My family, um, I recently learned something in the last year that my dad is the pickiest eater in our family. I didn't know this when I was younger. See, when I was younger, he was teaching me not to be a picky eater. And I thought I was so picky because he would always talk about it. He would say, anything mom puts on your plate, you must eat. And then he would start putting things on my plate, things I didn't know, like what they were. And I think I have a pet peeve where I don't like when people reach onto my plate. And I think that has to do maybe just a little bit with that. But he would give me all these strange things and say, eat it. And I would ask, what is it? He would say, eat it and I'll tell you. And I would eat it, I wouldn't like it, and my face would scrunch up and he would laugh. And so I think it was kind of entertaining for him. But as an adult, I watch my dad's eating habits. I watch what he eats, what he doesn't eat. When I take my parents out or bring them food, I watch what he doesn't like. And I realize he is pickier than I am. And what actually happened is that my mom has compensated. We addressed it to him, we we said, Dad, you're really picky, and he denied it. He said, no, I'm not picky, you're picky. And so my family, my mom, my brother, and myself, we immediately got around him and just explained to him why he's the pickiest one. We proved him wrong, and that over years, my mom has learned to compensate. See, when they met, and she started cooking for him, she learned what he liked. She also learned what he didn't like. So he, she only cooked the things that she thought he would enjoy, avoided all the things that she knew that he wouldn't enjoy, and over years that became our family diet. And when we said that, he he kind of looked at us, and still wanted to win. He was like, mm-hmm. and that was it, right? But you see, when somebody has an issue or a problem that isn't addressed, it can easily grow into something much bigger, something long-lasting. We think we can move on and the problems will just be at bay and we can function as normal. But the thing about compensation is that it sneaks up on us. We don't realize that our bodies are compensating when there's a problem. We don't realize actively when this is happening. And the direction that Paul gives us here is not distance yourself from the problem. It's not just avoid it so that you can make everyone feel better. It's address it. third reason why this is very important is that it hurts our Christian witness to the world. It hurts our Christian witness to the world. In chapter 6, this is what Paul says. He talks about um, slaves and masters. And the picture of slavery is not what we have in terms of American history. It's closer to servants and masters, those who work employees and bosses. And he says, work hard and do good so that the name of God and our teaching may not be slandered. See, we live in a world full of people who don't believe in the God we believe, who haven't experienced new life the way we have. And we represent God for each of these people. And so the gospel should shape not just the way we work with our families, not just the way we work within the church, but with every relationship that we have. You see, sometimes we make mistakes. Sometimes people wrong us. And the Christian answer isn't just to say, it's okay, I can take it and we'll move on. We're called to address our faults, whether they're ours or on the other side, so that we can experience something better. And you see, if we're not doing it in our churches and in our families, if we're not learning the beauty and value of rebuke, repentance, forgiveness, love, and being loved with the people who are closest to us, what hope do we have to do this well with people we don't really know that well? What hope do we have to do this well with people who don't believe in the God we believe in, who don't have the base set of values that we might have? You see, the broken story is that sometimes family and church become the hardest places to do this. Sometimes, and this is even sadder, they become the only places where we feel like we can't. You see, a lot of times in churches we come and we're smiling, it's Sunday morning, But the truth is, we all come from families that are not perfect. The truth is that it's not uncommon for families to just be a distant part of your life. Where family, they're just people you see on certain holidays or for certain occasions because you have to, and so you get through the few hours to do what you have to do so you can move on with your life. And I think that's such a sad story. The same can happen to church. In our day, church is all about the individual experience. And yes, while that's important, again, sometimes it becomes an excuse. where we say it's hard to engage with people, it's hard to work out our conflicts, it's hard to be around people who don't think the way I do, who don't live the way I do, who don't tick the way that I do. So I'll just come to church, worship my God, be good with Him, and be done. But God calls us to much more than that. This individual relationship with God shouldn't be an excuse not to deal with our problems. And here I just want to prompt you, maybe when you go home, to pray for your families, to pray for your church. Because it's hard and it takes time. It's painful. It only works when we're praying and when we're slowly working towards it. The difficult thing about this is even when we want to do it, even when we believe it's good, even when we are trying, it's very difficult. And here, there's two sides of this coin, and I'm going to ask for some participation here. Uh, and when I do this with youth groups, I always tell them, I don't like this, I don't like like this, I like this. If you're going to participate, participate. And so I'll ask you to do that. You don't have to do it right away. I'll tell you when so you're not over-anxious to you know, share with everyone where you're at. But the first side of this is the highly confrontational person. With the illustration of surgery, right, these are the people who can't leave anything alone. Pimple, scars, anything. They have to pick, and I was that person when I was younger. I have scars from ripping off like beauty marks and it's really gross, but I wonder if that has something to do with being confrontational. The good side, the good side of these uh, characteristics is that these people tend to value clarity. They value justice. When the Bible says God is a just God, God is all about truth, we say yes and amen. The danger and tendency of these people um, is that we might forget the goal of addressing our problems is restoration. That the goal is not about winning or proving myself right, but it's about restoration, love, and moving forward together. The worst side of this is that we start to excuse ourselves because we're so used to pointing out other people's problems. So we begin to exclude ourselves from that sense of judgment. Now, if this is you, please raise your hand. There's so few of us. Right? But this is also me, and that's why I raise my hand. I'll do it one more time. If this is you, please raise your hand. Oh, so people who are more confrontational, who need to attack every little problem, the good side is that they like the clarity, they like truth, the bad side is we might start to become judgmental. We might start to just hurt people, forgetting that the goal is restoration. One last time, if this is you, please raise your hand. Oh, somebody raised a spouse's hand, Um, (laughs) please don't do that. But for people who tend to be this way, I think it's important for us to remember not to rush in so hot-headed. To recognize some people might need time. Some people communicate differently. If we look at the text that we read today, it says, don't admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three. It's a recognition that I might not know all of the facts. I might not be right so let me work towards something good. The flip side of this, the other side, are people who tend to avoid confrontation. And surgically, the illustration would be the person who, let's say, they don't want to hear the bad news of what has to get done or what they might have, the diagnosis, because if they don't acknowledge it, it's not there. And so they'll postpone doctor's visits. They'll avoid all of the problems because if it's not addressed, it's not there. And the good side of these people is that they don't want to hurt other people. They don't want to offend other people. They don't want to say the wrong thing. And when the Bible says, blessed are the peacemaker, and they, when it talks about God and his love, they say yes and amen. The danger and possible, possible danger and tendency is that these people might forget that God says this is, this is something you should do. These people forget that the purpose isn't to hurt or to be hurt, but the purpose is to find a deeper sense of love. These people might be afraid of being wrong, afraid of being hurt, being hurt again, being rejected or rejected again. And the tendency is to bottle up. And if this is the way you tend to be, please raise your hand. There's an imbalance because there were very few for both. And so some of you guys are abstaining and not participating in joining us, but we'll let you go. But you see, God wants not just a shallow sense of peace and love. He wants something far deeper. He doesn't want peace in the sense that everything on the surface is fine, but underneath there's a lot going on. He doesn't want a sense of love where everyone just feels good, but he wants something far deeper where we get to experience and journey together. He wants that for us with one another and with himself. You see, in Ephesians chapter 4, it says, speak the truth in love. And a lot of times, truth and love are pitted against each other. But the truth is, they go hand in hand. And the more confrontational person might say, I'm going to speak truth and forget love. Those who might avoid confrontation might say, I'm going to love people at the cost of truth. But The Bible calls us to bring them together for the sake of restoration, for the sake of deeper love. After this service, I don't want you to go home to your spouse, your siblings, your friends, and say, you're too confrontational or you you avoid conflict. I don't want you to do that. But the purpose is to consider how I function. To say, what are my tendencies? How can I do this better in a way that actually reaches or moves towards the right goal? And how can I receive rebuke? How can I hear those things from people who love me for the same reason? You see, Jesus, he's not just the one who's told us to do this, but he is our model for this. Jesus, in his life here on earth, gave people no excuse when it came to sin. At the same time, when somebody came repentant, when somebody came seemingly hopeless, he sat with them. He brought them a new story of restoration and new life. The Samaritan woman, uh, in John chapter 4, Jesus actually exposed her sin. If you think about it, it's so ridiculous. He says, bring your husband. And she says, I don't have one. He says, I know exactly why. Because you had five, and the man you're with isn't even your husband right now. I can't imagine the shock if someone were to do that. So he, he doesn't just hear her out. He exposes her sin. But instead of shaming her, hurting her, pushing her away like the rest of her town has, he brings her something better. Zacchaeus Described in Luke chapter 19, he's a tax collector who's cheating his own people. And when Jesus is coming, he's up in a tree just to get a glimpse. And Jesus comes to him and says, come down, I want to spend time with you. He doesn't excuse Zacchaeus for his fault. but He gives him something better. So for the Christian, Christ is our source and motivation because he's the one who showed us this love to begin with. He's the one we represent to the world. And he's also our model who has done it perfectly. So you see this surgical interjection called conflict resolution, rebuke, correction, or speaking the truth in love. It's a skill that we all need to get better and better in. Grow and value. My hope is that it will be a part of our culture. Not just something we have to decide to do, but something that seems natural to us. I didn't go into the how-to's or what we do to do this. Because I think it's important for us to start with the gospel. To recognize this isn't just a person-to-person issue. To remember the goal, that it's not about winning, that it's not about avoiding pain, but it's about finding restoration, reconciliation, and new life with one another. I think those are the important places to start. So right now, would you bow your heads for a moment just to pray and respond and reflect?